iconic, charismatic megafauna that call the Southern Ocean home a pretty special. We're talking the killer whales, seals, and smaller but still iconic penguins. But what about their food? Microscopic phytoplankton and krill warrant just as much attention, if not more, because they are the foundation of the entire Southern Ocean ecosystem. Today I am joined by marine ecologist Dr. Matt Pinkerton from the National Institute of Water and Atmospheric Research, otherwise known as NEWA, to have a chat about the Southern Ocean food web from microscopic organisms to top predators. Matt is a principal scientist at NEWA specializing in marine ecology and remote sensing. His main fields of interest include marine food webs, Antarctic fisheries, and remote sensing of phytoplankton. Matt is heavily involved in the Ross Sea Region Research and Monitoring Program, otherwise known as Ross RAMP, which is a five-year research program evaluating the effectiveness of the Ross Sea Region Marine Protected Area. So sit back, go for a walk, or procrastinate your work by tuning in for a really fascinating discussion on Southern Ocean Marine Biology. Welcome, Matt. What is the basic structure of the Southern Ocean Marine Food Web? I guess the, I guess the defining characteristic of Southern Ocean food webs uh, compared to food webs in the rest of the world uh, is their seasonality. So whereas you get primary production down at the bottom end of the food web by the growth of phytoplankton, so in, in marine systems generally around the world, they're fueled by the growth of phytoplankton by photosynthesis. So the phytoplankton live in the surface sunlit water down to about 50 or 100 meters. Um, and then everything else essentially uses energy that they, they produce. Now that's, that's not true in coastal oceans, of course, where you get benthic primary producers, um, you know, seagrass and macroalgae and um, microphytobenthos growing on soft sediments. But in, the, in ocean environments away from the coast, it all comes from the phytoplankton in the surface of the ocean. So in most parts of the world, that phytoplankton grows more or less year round. So around New Zealand, for instance, you get peaks of production sometimes in the spring and the autumn. Um, in other parts of the world, it's far more even around through the year. But when you get down into the Southern Ocean, that primary production happens really briefly for like one or two months, you get this massive spike in productivity. And then it goes down to just about zero uh, for the rest of the year and, and absolutely zero during the winter when there's no light down there. So that intense seasonality in the primary productivity creates special challenges for all the animals living down there. They've kind of got to make all their, all their hay while the sun shines in, in one or two months of the year. And, and often that kind of high, that kind of peak primary productivity happens in association with a change of the seasonal ice in the Southern Ocean as well. So it's the biggest physical seasonal change on the planet as the sea ice extends out from the Antarctic continent in, as in the autumn, you know, through March, February, March, April, May, and the sea ice is growing and it reaches its maximum extent in, in July. And then it, it kind of sits there with this massive area of sea ice and then it starts to recede um, coming into the spring. So you get the minimum sea ice around February in most places. Um, so that puts a huge structuring factor on the system as well. And, and often it's when that, when that sea ice starts to recede um, in the, in the um, spring, then the melting sea ice leads to this stabilization of the water column because you're getting the fresh water put into the surface. And that's coupled with this increase of light levels in the spring. And suddenly you get, you also get um, iron, which is in the sea ice, which is released into the water. So you've got this input of these micronutrients, the iron, and you've got an increase in light and you've got the water column being very stable. So the phytoplankton are held near the surface. And this leads to this massive explosion of primary productivity and you get this huge peak around the edge of the receding sea ice often. And right. that's the... That's the kind of main energy that then flows on through the rest of the food web for the rest of the year. Exactly. So these conditions are optimal for these phytoplankton to grow and reproduce and have these massive blooms on the sea ice edge, essentially. 
That's right, that's right. And then a lot of the animals then have to work out how to use this massive peak in productivity to keep themselves going over the course of the year. So what kind of animals would eat the phytoplankton directly as opposed to indirectly through the food chain? So the, one of the other defining characteristics of Southern Ocean ecosystems is that the food, um, the food web can be very short. So there can be relatively few species and the, and the food chain can be relatively short. So krill are uh, herbivores. So they basically graze the phytoplankton directly. So that's kind of unusual because they're quite big to be phytoplankton grazers. So um, they're obviously more numerous in the Southern Ocean than in other parts of the world. You get, you get euphorsids, you get kind of a krill all around the world, but in the Southern Ocean, they have this much higher importance, much more, um, much more biomass than you get in other parts of the world. And they're, and they're herbivores. You get other kinds of uh, zooplankton that are herbivorous as well in the Southern Ocean, but krill are really the, the bit that's unusual about the Southern Ocean. So they're the keystone species of the Southern Ocean, essentially. Everything depends on krill, but then krill depend on phytoplankton. That's right. So it's, it's, so it's, pretty, short. it's a pretty short chain. Those krill, the Antarctic krill, which is what people tend to think of with krill, so there's different species of krill. Those Antarctic krill are, are kind of north of the, of, the, um, of the Antarctic continental shelf. So if you're looking at somewhere like the Ross Sea, which has got quite a big continental shelf. You don't get, interestingly, you don't get Antarctic krill over the shelf. You get crystal krill over the shelf and you get Antarctic krill over the deeper water to the north. So you get this kind of division of ecosystems uh, depending over, over the Antarctic continental shelf and over the deeper water. So over the Antarctic continental shelf around the Ross Sea, for instance, um, you get Antarctic silverfish and they tend to be the keystone species in those very high latitudes. But those Antarctic silverfish don't, don't live out in the deeper water. They're kind of specialist over that continental shelf water in those coastal, not coastal, but um, shelf seas areas rather than over the oceanographic water. Right. Interesting. So phytoplankton, as you touched on before, exist under the ice shelf or underneath sea ice, so under ice algae, but then you can also have pelagic phytoplankton. What's the difference there in terms of what animals feed on them directly? Well, you, you get the, the, most of the phytoplankton in the Southern Ocean is, is in the water and growing in the water. So when the sea ice melts, it, it kind of leads to conditions that are conducive to these big phytoplankton blooms next to the sea ice, but, but not necessarily underneath it, because underneath the sea ice, the light level is a lot lower. So they tend to, these big blooms tend to be next to the sea ice and, and occur in the water column. You, you do get algae, which actually grows inside the sea ice matrix. So these are, are called pontic algae or sea ice algae, and they tend to be different species and they tend to have different characteristics. They have to be um, very, very tolerant to very high salinities because what happens in the ice is that it gradually um, releases the salt into uh, water that flows out of the sea ice. So you get brine channels within the sea ice, which have got hugely high salinities. And so the algae living in the sea ice has to be tolerant to these kind of extreme conditions. The algae in the water has a much easier time of it. It's, it's kind of more uh, normal algae living in, the, living in the water itself. So estimates of the relative importance of those different types of algae are a little bit tricky to get, but probably you know 90% of the primary productivity happens in the water column and maybe 10% in the sea ice. But the thing about the algae growing in the sea ice is that because they're held in the sea ice at the very surface of the water, they, they can manage to um, maintain their productivity in, in the sort of low light autumn and spring conditions, early spring conditions, where there's not a lot of light getting into the water for, for allowing the phytoplankton there to grow. So, so those sea ice algae might be especially important ecologically because they give a little bit of food just to keep things going until these big blooms happen in the water column. Right, so, so they kind, kind of sustain the system during a time mm. that these more freely floating phytoplankton, the conditions aren't exactly optimal for their growth. 
That's right. Yeah. So there's this kind of complicated mixture of productivity with different bits of productivity available in different places at different times. And so the, the grazers and the, and the um, predators have to kind of work around these characteristics and, and, and find ways of keeping going over the whole year. And figure out where they are at what time. <laughs> yeah. So some, some do that, like the, the animals that can move tend to just leave the Antarctic when there's no productivity there. So, you know, the, the mammals and the, the seals and the whales and the seabirds, you know, they generally just leave the Antarctic when there's outside that summer period and, and go somewhere else where there's more productivity. And then they just go back there. When you get these big blooms of productivity and there's lots of food there, they kind of go back to the Antarctic and then they gorge themselves for a short period and then they, and then they head north again as the seasonal sea ice comes on. Interesting. So what essentially are phytoplankton? There's lots of different species of phytoplankton and I imagine they all have very different structures. So what do they look like and what kind of, like, can they swim? Can they float? So there are, there are definitely lots of different species of phytoplankton. There's different functional groups where they kind of grouped into different types. But I guess the defining characteristic of phytoplankton is that they uh, photosynthesize. So they absorb light energy from the sun and then they use that to create organic matter. Um, they've got, you know, so they have, a, so there's a lot of similarities. There's more similarities and differences, I guess. They have uh, different kinds of pigments that help to absorb the different, the different uh, to absorb the light and then to help them grow. They have different sizes and different dependencies on nutrients. So they, the species that you get in the Southern Ocean um, are kind of um, adapted to the condition, you know, they're, they're optimal for the conditions that you get in the Southern Ocean as opposed to in temperate conditions. So in, in most parts of the world, um, phytoplankton productivity, so the, the rate of photosynthesis is affected by how much light there is there, uh, temperature to a certain extent, and the amount of nutrients that are there. And the nutrients that, that limit most phytoplankton growth around the world, so around New Zealand, for instance, or around the North Atlantic, are uh, a macronutrients like nitrate and phosphate. And it's interesting that in the Southern Ocean, there's quite a lot of nitrate and a lot of phosphate and silicate. So these macronutrients are not limiting. Instead, what, what limits is, is light availability and trace, trace element availabilities, especially iron. So in the Southern Ocean, you get those groups of phytoplankton that are particularly good at coping in high nitrate, low iron conditions and, and do well with that. What are some of the ways that you can study phytoplankton in Antarctica, but not being in Antarctica, like from your desk? Well, satellites are the, the, the most commonly used way of trying to look at large area productivities of phytoplankton. So if you were to go out and, and on a research ship and put a CTD over, so that's um, a system that measures temperature and conductivity, salinity and uh, depth through the water column. Uh, and often they have uh, bottles attached which collect water and you bring those up uh, from different depths, bring them into the laboratory and look down them at a microscope. You can see all the different phytoplankton cells there and then you can filter that water and you can extract the pigments and you can look at the concentration of algae or you can preserve them um, and then look at them down a microscope and identify them, look at their volumes and such like. That's, that's fine for that patch of water where you happen to be on the ship but as you can imagine you can't do that across the southern ocean and you exactly can't do that <laughs> in every month um, so the way that you tend to try and get over that scale issue is you use satellite data so you have satellites that are orbiting the earth and they basically have multi-spectral sensors that look at the light leaving the surface of the water uh, usually in kind of big blocks so a kilometer square it, it, it is a kind of common block for these satellites. Um, and they look at the color of the water. So they measure how much light they get, how much blue light, how much green light, how much red light, uh, to get an indication about how much, um, what the color of the water is. They tend to have something like seven spectral bands. And then from that, you estimate the amount of phytoplankton in the water. So, so one characteristic of phytoplankton is that they like, like, plants they tend to be green because 
some of the key pigment, pigments that they have in absorb light in the blue and in the red and, and don't absorb light in the green so they reflect the green light and that's why plants and algae look green. So if you have more algae in water the water tends to look a bit greener if you have less algae in water the water tends to look bluer that's the sort of natural color of pure water by measuring how green and how blue the water is you can get an estimate of the concentration of phytoplankton in it of course you don't necessarily know what type of phytoplankton and you only look at what's on near the surface of the water where that signal is coming from so if you've got things happening deeper in the water column, then you, you don't tend to see that by satellite. But you do get a good indication of the uh, amount of phytoplankton in the surface of that water in, in these, you know, kilometer by kilometer square pixels. Right. It's, it's such a powerful technique that when they launched the first ocean color satellite um, back in 1979, the, the first image that that satellite took had more measurements of chlorophyll than the entire history of oceanographic research to date. So it, it really revolutionized understanding about global patterns and variability of phytoplankton abundance in the ocean. Definitely. So I guess essentially for the sake of being able to cover a larger temporal range, you're, you're giving up that kind of spatial element so like you say you're just looking at the surface water but it's also a lot easier than going out in the southern ocean and taking various samples of the water and then going back to the lab and and looking at the concentration of of these phytoplankton in various areas so it's a bit of a compromise but it sounds like a really useful tool yeah and and the one of the main powers of, of it is that you can monitor the whole of the earth's surface um, every day uh, and you can do that for decades in a cost-effective way. So there's really no alternative to, to that kind of power by doing it in situ. It's still value in going there and measuring stuff in situ because you learn things about the, the details about what's going on in the, in the phytoplankton. You know, what's the exactly. change of species and how are they changing their adaptation to the conditions? And you can take samples of them and then run them do laboratory experiments on them where you, you, you add more carbon dioxide and, and see what happens to the phytoplankton response. And you, you can do incubations with them where you look at how fast they're incorporating um, organic, generating organic matter. Um, so so you, you can use that in situ data and those experiments to kind of improve the way that you use the satellite data. So the two go hand in hand really. Exactly. And it's also important for ground truth in your data as well. Interesting. Yeah, that's right. Very interesting. How could you develop a greater understanding of problems like climate change through studying phytoplankton? Well, one of the interesting things about climate change is it is it it, it kind of goes back to this. You might have heard the expression, um, everything is connected to everything else. And and that's that's the way it is in the ocean. So when the climate changes. It doesn't just make the water warmer. It changes the concentration of carbon dioxide in the water. It changes the water structure because it changes the buoyancy. Um, it also leads to changes of wind patterns. So you get current changes and, and that changes the, that, that mixing. And then when you change that mixing, it changes the way that nutrients are brought up from depth into the surface water. It, the climate change can affect where the clouds are. So that affects how much light gets into the surface of the water. Um, it can change the wind patterns, which affects where wind-borne dust gets into the surface of the water and that carries iron in. And it changes where sea ice forms and where it, where it melts. So all these factors all change simultaneously. So when you're trying to predict what effect that's gonna have on the phytoplankton, it becomes a very complicated issue. You can't just take your sample of phytoplankton, warm the water up and say, well, this is what's gonna happen when you get climate change. You have to take into account that you have all these multiple factors affecting phytoplankton changing at the same time. So you're looking at this, this multi-stressor response of phytoplankton to what's gonna happen with climate change. So, we're not particularly good at being able to forecast what's going to happen to phytoplankton in the Southern Ocean. And one of the reasons that's very tricky 
is because the iron availability is one of the key factors driving that productivity. And there are multiple ways in which iron can get into the surface of water. One way is melting of sea ice. One is um, iron-rich water being mixed up from deeper in the water column. One is wind-borne um, iron getting introduced into the water. And we don't really know the relative importances of these different iron delivery pathways or how climate change is going to affect them. So even from that single stressor, it's very difficult to forecast what effect climate change is going to have on productivity. So we, we certainly have a go. You put all these factors into these bigger system models and, and, and turn the handle and pay for large amounts of computing time and try and estimate what's going to happen in the future. And a lot of shipboard experiments to try and tie down the, the factors affecting phytoplankton, uh, understanding their response helps as well. But they're only, they're only projections based on our best knowledge. So that one of the powers of the satellite data is you can actually monitor it at the same time. You can see what's happening. And when you look at what's happened over the last 20 years in terms of phytoplankton biomass in the surface ocean around the Southern Ocean, you see a kind of interesting patterns. It's, it's going up in some areas and it's going down in some areas. And generally speaking, it's going up more than it's going down, especially in areas around East Antarctica. So the picture that you get is that climate change is not going to affect the whole southern ocean or ecosystems equally there's going to be areas that change and become more productive and there's going to be areas that change and become less productive so the ross sea shelf area seems to be decreasing in productivity while as east antarctica further away from the out towards the polar front seems to be getting more productive over the last 20 years so you get this direct indication about what's happening in different areas. So around New Zealand, for instance, um, northern waters tend to be getting less productive. Um, Subantarctic waters tend to be getting more productive and frontal areas seem to be getting more productive. So climate change is not a, a, a one-stop shop for a single kind of change. It's, um, it's kind of winners and losers and, and a restructuring of the systems. Yeah, so there sounds like a lot of regional and local variability there. Kind of complex to wrap your head around, especially when you're looking like at the Southern Ocean, for example. There's so many different areas that comprise the Southern Ocean, especially like when you're referring to fronts and currents and coastal areas, and it's a lot going on. <laughs> you know, that's the, in some ways, that's the easier part because that's the phytoplankton where we can actually observe them. So then that energy then flows up into the rest of the food web. So into the krill that we've talked about and into the zooplankton um, and then into the small fish and the, and the invertebrates living in the water column. And then the, the, through the sort of falling of organic matter onto the seabed, all the benthic ecosystems and the, the demersal fish that are eating in those benthic ecosystems and in the water column. And then you've got the predators that are then moving around trying to find their next feed in, in this kind of landscape. So everything's trying to forecast how that flows on then through the rest of the food web is, is a, a very tricky thing because we don't have this kind of remote sensing method like we have for phytoplankton or zooplankton, for instance. So we've got to try and find ways of doing long-term monitoring of those zooplankton populations. And, and one way that we've been trying to do that this is a particular instrument that's towed behind ships. So fishing vessels can tow it or um, any, any research vessels can tow it or any um, transport vessels can tow it. And, it, and basically it, it, the water flows through it and then it filters the zooplankton out onto this little um, reel of, of silk that it then puts into a bath of preservative. And then when you pull the instrument out, you can unroll this this filter and, and look at what zooplankton you've caught in different parts of the ocean. And then you can get you know, large area indications of, of what the different zooplankton communities in different areas are doing. That's pretty cool. So there's lots of different methods that go into understanding the structure of, of the food web, essentially. You can use various tools to pinpoint different species and different organism types and, and they're all connected. I think that's the biggest message from all the, the episodes that we've done so far is that you have all these different 
fields of science in Antarctic and Southern Ocean research, and they, they're all relevant to one another, essentially. Everything's connected in this big system, big complex system. <laughs> two, two truisms. Everything's connected to everything else, and the more you study something, the more complicated it becomes. And the, and less the more you questions you it. have. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so phytoplankton are not only fascinating because they directly influence the entire food web in the Southern Ocean and in the world, essentially, but they also have a way of regulating climate. Do you want to touch on that a little bit? Yeah, so the feedbacks between the biological and the physical system are really interesting. So some of that came out through the, the Gaia hypothesis that basically said the biological system has feeds back into the climate system and tends to lead to a system which is most conducive to that biological sustainability. And so you know, that was a hypothesis. And then people have been looking for specific examples of how this, that, how this can operate. And, and one which has uh, had a lot of study is the fact that um, phytoplankton can release a chemical into the, into the air, which forms tiny little particular, uh, uh, tiny little partic particles in the, in the atmosphere. And they can cause clouds to, uh, form around them so they cloud condensation nuclei so the phytoplankton then can lead to these these more cloudiness in the areas above them and that can lead to more shading onto the ocean and can make it uh, keep the keep the temperatures down because it reflects more of the incoming solar energy back into space and regulate the climate that way so there's certainly well established mechanisms by which you get an effect feeding back from the biology, from the phytoplankton, into the into the global climate system. Um, so the question is, uh, if we perturb that system by putting in lots of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, um, how does will these will these feedback mechanisms help to stabilize things, or will we destroy that stabilization and lead to a more of a runaway system and and that's kind of a, a a pretty critical area of research which is ongoing at the moment that's really interesting so these phytoplankton release these chemicals into the atmosphere make more clouds which make it shadier essentially prohibiting that light from getting through all the time and that's one way that they regulate the climate but then another way that's also quite interesting is just like plants on land they draw co2 out of the atmosphere to grow is that right that's right so they so they take carbon dioxide out of the out of the water and then that leads to carbon dioxide dissolving from the air into the into the water and then a portion of when the phytoplankton die um, they can sink down into the water column, taking some of that carbon with them. And then as they sink, bacterial processes act on them and some of that carbon dioxide, most of that carbon, which is, which is in the, the organic matter that they've created, goes back into solution in the water column and a, and a proportion reaches the seabed where it can be buried or sequestered away for a, a long period. But that, that the water that they're falling through while they're being decomposed then becomes enriched in dissolved carbon dioxide. And then when that gets brought up to the surface again by um, the action of mixing in the water column, that, that supersaturated water, that carbon dioxide then gets released back into the atmosphere. So you have this kind of cycle going around where the carbon dioxide comes out of the atmosphere, goes into the phytoplankton, goes down to depth, because most of it goes back into the water column. Some gets sequestered onto the seabed and then the stuff that's in the deep water gets released back into the atmosphere later on. So there's a delay that's caused by that so-called biological pump. There's a delay caused by that. So if you super fertilize the phytoplankton in the surface water, you can, you can, take, you can, you can produce more biomass and that can take more carbon down to depth. But only a proportion of that actually is buried 
long-term on the seabed, most of it will actually come back up to the surface at some stage and be released again. It's not, it's not necessarily a good long-term solution because it's only stuff reaching the seabed is only a few percent of the, of the productivity that happens in the surface. Most of it actually just enters this, this cycle and is released again somewhere else. I guess my final question on climate change is what kinds of organism displacement or distribution changes have we already observed in the Southern Ocean due to climate change? Well, one of the, one of the interesting uh, questions at the moment is, so we've, we've talked about Southern Ocean ecosystems as being unusual because they can have very short um, food web pathways. So you have phytoplankton, you have Antarctic krill, and then you have whales. You know, so you've got a, 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 a three organism chain there going from microscopic phytoplankton up to, up to blue whales or other baleen whales. So you've got these very short pathways. Most of the world systems have much longer pathways. So you have multiple organisms, uh, maybe five organisms or more in a, in, a, in a long chain and in a more interconnected network, many more species as well in each one of those different trophy niches. And one of the types of organism that you get a lot of in the, in the middle of that food web are these gelatinous organisms like, like salps. And so the question is whether global warming and, and climate change is leading to changes in the ocean system such that these salps are going to replace Antarctic krill as the dominant middle part of the Antarctic food web. So that would then have repercussions through the whole of the food web. Um, and there's some evidence that these salps are getting more common in the Southern Ocean and, and krill might be uh, getting less common. But because they're so hard to sample these organisms over the appropriate scales, it's quite hard to be sure that that's, that's actually going on. Right, interesting. So essentially we need more ships and more more toe samples <laughs> to figure out what's going on. Uh, well I, I I I'm kind of really even if you even if you uh put much more of our of our available resources into research ships, we're still gonna have real trouble trying to sample this at the appropriate scale. So I think the challenge is really out for the engineers and the inventors and the technologists. We need um, automated, this is kind of a particular interest of mine, automated technology that can measure these biological components of the system without people have to being there. So you put out um, gliders, so you can have autonomous gliders, which mm -hmm. uh, take energy out of the ocean system in order to power themselves and then undulate from the surface down to depth, measuring um, the physical characteristics of the water as they do so and you can get uh, you can get sensors which will look at phytoplankton through the water column we kind of need to use that kind of approach but for higher trophy levels so can we get a system which will automatically look at the zooplankton community in the upper water column without us having to send a research ship there because research ships are, are really expensive uh, yeah, definitely. They're, so, they're, so they're really limited and they can only go there in the summer when there's no sea ice. So, you know, what's happening under the sea ice in the, in the winter, you know, we know very, very little about that because we can't send any ships down there. So if we can develop autonomous technology, you know, these self-powered gliders or um, mini submarines or self-driving boats with sensors on that can actually measure this stuff using acoustics or with cameras or with other sensors, and we do that at scale, so we can do that so that we can have hundreds of these things out 24-7, year-round, underneath the ice. Um, then we'll start to get the data that we need in order to understand what's changing and predict what's going to change in the future. So really, you know, we kind of, it's like the, it's like the revolution that happened when we put the first ocean colour satellites up. We completely revolutionised our understanding of our ocean productivity around the world. We need that same step change in technology to look at what's happening in the rest of the food web. Exactly. You're so right because we are so constrained in terms of when we can go down there and how long we can go down for and during that time, you know, what we can actually achieve in terms of data collection. So definitely sounds like an interesting field and you're right, engineers need to figure out. <laughs>
yeah, someone can invent a, a SALP system, a SALP sensor that you can put an autonomous submarine that can just go down and, and exactly them. or a krill cam, then we'll know what's going on. Yeah, you're right. And especially during that, that winter period, I think that is such a, a area which is lacking a lot of knowledge and rightly so. There's so many limiting factors of getting down there in the winter and then actually being able to do anything because it's dark and it's cold and sea ice. There's just so many reasons why it's not possible. So to be able to start figuring out what's going down there for an entire you know, other six months of the year, that's probably quite critical. Absolutely. And it might take, um, you, you know, to get these things working and to start gathering the data, we might have to wait for 10 years to, to build up that data, uh, to really get a good picture about what's going on. But um, if it, what we don't want to be, we don't want to be in 10 years time in the same position of saying, well, we only sample there in the summer and we can only have a ship that goes down every second year and we can do these little pin pin spots of what's going on exactly start thinking of things that we can scale up using this new technology especially because you know basically the longer we wait the the closer we could be to irreversible changes so it's that's right yeah you need it you need a long time series to try try and understand how the system's changing exactly it would be terrible to in 20 30 years time report on something that has already happened and we can't do anything about it. One thing that's very interesting is some of the um, satellite sensor technology is getting so good that you can image individual seals down on the sea ice. So seals are kind of helpful in some ways because they, some species hold themselves out onto nice white um, snow covered or, or ice covered areas. So they've become quite uh, visible to satellites which have got you know, resolutions of tens of centimeters. We can gather that data now, and there's projects out uh, from the University of Canterbury where they start asking citizen scientists to count how many seals you see in different images. And so we can actually start using you know, individual counts of seals in different parts of the Antarctic to understand variability from year to year and place to place. And the technology is almost getting to the point where we can do the same thing with penguins at the moment. Uh, penguins are a little bit too small to count individually, so people are using when the penguins are out on the on the on the Antarctic land, then they uh, their their guano colours the the land, and you can look at the change of colour from the from the penguin poop to kind of estimate how big the colonies are and the types of penguin that you get there, and you can use that as an index of change of the penguin colonies rather than having to go there. Um, so that that's you know other kind of technology like that. Of course, it's trickier for things like the, the whales, which, which are much less visible from satellites. Methods that might, use, might be useful for whales are you can, they usually vocalize, so you can use acoustic listening posts to try and understand how many whales are in different areas at different times and try and work out how many of them are there. So that kind of technology deployed at scale could, could start to build up a better picture of those top predators like the whales. Definitely. Because at the moment, we're, we're really, really ignorant about the, the population patterns of some of these large whales. You know, whether it's one population or whether they are in subpopulations, where they go at different times of the year, how many of them there are. It's very, very difficult to study large whales. One thing I find particularly fascinating about the whales is looking at those tracking sensors and you can see when they actually travel down to the Antarctic during those feeding seasons. Um, and, you know, some of them are traveling from all the way up near Fiji almost and they go right down to the Ross Sea region. It's pretty cool to see the, the lengths that they go just to get lunch. <laughs> That's right. And, and the ones, I mean, tagging is a really good technique and one of the but the bias of that one is that we tend to tag those whales that come near to where people are. So if they pass near some land on the way, they're more likely to be tagged than the populations that never come anywhere near people or anywhere near land. So it's, a, it's a, probably a biased way of trying to understand the whole population, but definitely just about the best we've got at the moment. Yeah. Oh, well, this is just like that point you raised earlier. The, the more you look into things, the more questions you have and you realize how little, I guess, we do know 
of the entire system. But these emerging technologies, and we actually do have another episode on remote sensing where we do talk about the Weddell seals and remote sensing of sea ice and ice shelves. And I think it's just such a useful tool in a place that is logistically difficult to get to, but so critical in terms of, you know, the entire Earth system. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. We definitely need to find a way to um, to make our research money go further. And the things that we need to do to kind of understand how things are going to change in the future are to monitor lots of different parts of the ecosystem simultaneously over large areas over a long period of time. Well, that's a really difficult thing to both to do and to afford. And it seems to me that technology is the only way that we're going to be able to make a lot of progress in that area. Definitely. What are you currently working on at the moment? My research at the moment is, is I guess, looking using that satellite data to try and look at patterns of change in phytoplankton productivity around the Southern Ocean. There's a question about whether we can actually, using the satellite data, distinguish between different functional types of phytoplankton. So they can have slightly different colors and slightly different scattering properties, optical properties. So can you actually use subtleties in those differences to say, this is one type of phytoplankton and this is a different type of phytoplankton. These are diatoms, these are dinoflagellates. And, and that would be really useful because we know that the relationship between the, the biomass and the productivity of those different groups is different. So if we can distinguish between the different groups, we can do a better at estimating productivity and we'll do better at trying to say, well, this group seems to be doing well under these climate change scenarios, and this group seems to be doing poorly. So, Right, looking at the winners of, and the losers. Yeah, if we can actually get a, you know, a more subtle measurement from the satellite data, that'll be really positive. Um, I'm trying to use the data from the continuous plankton recorder that I talked about before, mm -hmm. trying to look at which are the winners and losers of the, of the zooplankton community on that and what might be driving that. That's a, a really interesting project that's been going on for 10 years um, and, and, is, and is ongoing. Um, I've got an interest in uh, understanding why food webs are structured why, as they are structured. So why, why are Antarctic food webs structured differently from tropical food webs? Uh, and that's, a, you know, partly it's to do with the amount of data that you have partly it's to do with the modeling techniques that we have for trying to work out whether we can actually say this food web is fundamentally different from the structure of this food web and the reasons that it's different are these. So that seems to be uh, to try and understand why systems self-organize in a particular way is kind of crucial for trying to estimate what's going to happen in the future because all systems are certainly not, are certainly not the same. No, definitely. All very it's different. Also big, it's also a big, um, you know, fishing is also occurring in parts of the Southern Ocean. So toothfish fishing in particular is occurring in the Ross Sea. So we've got a big project on at the moment trying to understand whether it's possible to fish without having uh, an effect on the rest of the system or a, a significant effect on the rest of the system and how you would organise your fishing in order to reduce any risk of it affecting the rest of the system. You know, whether to what extent large marine protected areas are a, a, a useful tool for trying to reduce that potential damage of fishing on Southern Ocean ecosystems. So that's a very topical question, given the push around the world for um, larger marine protected areas, and trying to understand their role and how to design them and, and how effective they are. Yeah. And I guess perfect focal area. We've got the Ross Sea MPA just right below us. So, yeah, the world's largest marine protected area. Just exactly, exactly. So, part of that big question, I guess, is that some of the Ross Ramp work? Yes. So, Ross Ramp is a, a five-year New Zealand government-funded program to try and uh, look at the effects of fishing and climate change on the Ross Sea ecosystem and. Mm -hmm to work out how useful that, that marine protected area in the Ross Sea region is. Because um, a lot of the animals that we're particularly concerned about uh, move in and out of the protection area and over the course of a year. Mm -hmm. And so 
the question is to what extent does that protection um, spatial protection actually reduce the risk of something bad happening to these species and systems that we're concerned about so we're three years into that uh, program uh, another two years to go so we've been looking at that zooplankton and the phytoplankton productivity we've been looking at the fishery and the effects on the bycatch species and we've been doing work on the Weddell seals in particular and the um, um, Adelie penguins and the emperor penguins so we're particularly interested in uh, three predators because they're the the, the big predators of toothfish so they are uh, Weddell seals uh, killer whales a particular fish eating kind of killer whale um, and uh, sperm whales so they're the three predators that we know of for toothfish and uh, we're interested in how uh, the MPA the marine protected area protects those species from any detrimental effects that arise from fishing toothfish right so this MPA came into force in 2016 is that right it was agreed in 2016 and came into force in 2017. Right. So how long does that MPA stay in place before it goes up for discussion again? Essentially, fisheries in the Southern Ocean are managed through CAMELAR. That organisation regulates fishing in the Southern Ocean. And to make any decisions, uh, all members of CAMELAR have to uh, agree. So it's decision making by consensus. So you can imagine when you've got an organization that includes countries as diverse as the US, Russia, Ukraine, China, Japan, New Zealand, South Africa, the European Union, trying to get everyone to agree on how to manage a fishery on the principles of that is a very difficult process. It's difficult um, politically and scientifically. And so when you get a marine protected area agreed by all those countries it's it's a kind of an amazing step forward that definitely countries come together and say yes we agree we should establish the world's largest protected area in the southern ocean is a is a phenomenal achievement of, of those countries and that organization it was set up with a 35-year lifespan so unless all the members of Kamala agree to stop it it will continue for 35 years at the end of 35 years all members of Kamala have to agree for it to continue beyond that. Every five years, information has to be presented on how well the MPA is doing. Every 10 years, it has to be formally assessed and they have to decide whether they're going to continue it or stop it. Um, chances are it will continue through all those reviews. And then at 35 years, um, they have another review and then they decide whether they're going to maintain the MPA or change it or disestablish it entirely. So what we need to do now is set up procedures where we can gather the data such that in 35 years time, we'll be able to say something sensible and useful about what the MPA has done and whether it's worth continuing it or not. I see. And so the research that you're doing and the research that a lot of New Zealand scientists are doing, uh, essentially looking at the effectiveness of this MPA and its current placement, what happens if in 10 years time we decide that the MPA needs to be extended to a certain area or changed in shape or size? So, so Kamala can uh, do, you know, do anything they want to that protected area, um, right. so long as they all agree. So if everyone said, look, we, we did this, but there's a vital part of the system that we didn't protect and, and you can make the scientific scientific case that that's that that's important such that all members agree that yes we should add on this extra bit then we then Kamala has perfect power at any time to add on another another bit of protection and similarly if all the members agree that you know this is completely pointless it's not doing anything we can just disestablish it then they can scrap it at any time it doesn't have to continue to 35 years so it can be changed in that time the chances are, given the difficulties of establishing scientific and political consensus, that what has been set up now will continue for that period. And then right. at the end of that time, they will have to um, be a similar um, process of meeting of minds and of science to decide what the best thing to do after that time is. So it's so, kind of like a perfect junction of, of science and politics. 
So there's, there's always a lot of uncertainty in the science. So the politicians and the decision makers that are there have to look at the science and look at the uncertainties on that and then make their decisions about what the best thing to do is. And as I say, all those different countries have to have to agree. A lot of discussion and interpretation involved between, like you say, the science community and the policy community. So very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Camelot has got a good reputation, um, has, has a good history in that it was the first fisheries management organization in the world to um, recognize that fishing occurs within an ecosystem and you've got to do more than just protect the productive capacity of the of the species that you're fishing so they when they were when they were set up they explicitly recognized that you had to protect the species that you were fishing but also any of the other species that were dependent on it or connected with it so all the predators and prey of the species you were fishing also had to be considered in the management process right and also that any effects that you had from fishing should be reversible so you shouldn't do some permanent changes to the system that that was pretty progressive at the time and that was the compromise so they said right we're going to allow fishing in the southern ocean but you have to do it in such a way that we fish at a relatively low level in a way that doesn't damage the rest of the system and that the system can recover from if we were to stop fishing and that, and that was the compromise that got everyone to, to establish it. Back to this Ross Ramp project, you've only got two more years to go, and it definitely sounds like a really vital project and area of research. You're looking at, like you say, an entire food web structure. We've got the seals and the penguins and the zooplankton and the krill and the phytoplankton. So how has the COVID-19 pandemic, I guess, affected your progress, especially at the back end of that project? We were definitely slowed up. So, you know, you definitely lose, you know, six months maybe mm -hmm. of uh, progress because of people's working time being disrupted. The intention is that we get a, an extension at the end of the program to try and catch up on that. So no extra funding, but, but a bit longer to kind of get through the work that we're doing. Right. Um, so, that, so that's very positive if that goes through. The field work that was to be conducted from Scott Base down in the Antarctic has been quite severely disrupted. So we were lucky to just finish um, some of our major field seasons. So we finished the Adelie penguin sampling and we finished um, our first emperor penguin sampling. We finished our second whale seal sampling just before the COVID um, pandemic hit. But the next field season has been canceled entirely. Right. Um, and the one after that will be probably quite disrupted as well. So that research on those predators where you need to go down to the Antarctic base um, is, is quite affected. The research voyages, which is another major part of the research, have not been affected very much. So we've got a voyage in January, February 2021, um, which will go down to the Ross Sea. And, and that's probably going to carry on uh, more or less as it would have gone before, except that we're not able to get overseas people into New Zealand to join the voyage. So um, we're finding other ways to use homegrown talent and uh, other people to kind of fill in those gaps that would have come from overseas. So, so we're probably not as affected as some, but the, the predator fieldwork is certainly the most affected. Right. So the predator fieldwork that was going to happen over the next two seasons, what was that looking at in particular? Was it more penguins or seals? So that was going to be mainly on the emperor penguins and on the Weddell seals. So what we do on the Weddell seals is we're trying to uh, understand two aspects in particular. One is when the female Weddell seals have got pups and they're feeding the pups on the ice. Um, how are they foraging and what are they foraging on? And so we put things like cameras on their heads and time depth uh, sensors on them so that we can see how they're foraging. Um, and we're interested in whether those females are really searching for toothfish during that time, because that's obviously then a risk if the numbers of toothfish are, are down because of fishing. Um, so, and we also take blood samples and skin samples so that we can analyze those for biochemical markers which indicate feeding on toothfish. So trying to understand how much toothfish they're eating in that critical period when they're, when they're lactating and they're feeding their pups. 
And then we also put, as the second part of that, we put satellite transmitters onto the seals when they, when the, when they finish their molt and they finish feeding their pups and they disperse um, to feed over the winter and fatten up again, ready to come back for breeding the next season. And we want to see whether the areas that they go are the areas where we think toothfish are most common, again, to see whether they're um, feeding on toothfish in the, in, at those times. Um, so we were going to do that again next season. We've done that for two seasons so far. And so we're going to do that for a third season. That was going to be the end of the Weddell Seal work. And in terms of the emperor penguins, we're trying to understand, we're trying to use some of the penguins as um, indicators of changes to the rest of the system. So they don't, they're not feeding on toothfish. Toothfish are, you know, one and a half meters too long, uh, two meter long fish. So the penguins are obviously not feeding on those. They're feeding on things like krill and small fish, Antarctic silverfish. So if you can get an indication about changes to the penguin populations, it might tell you what's happening to those silverfish and to those krill, which are very difficult to sample by other means. So we were going to do another a second season on the um, emperor penguins to uh, look at how they're foraging and look at their, what they're feeding on, where they're going and how that's changing over time to see uh, as an indication of using variations in their population sizes as an indicator of changes to the, that, that keystone species in the food web. I guess it's quite difficult to say whether you'll get to do that research in the future, but it, it sounds really critical and hopefully hopefully you will get to finish off some of those those data sets and those Yes, we hope to be able to get back there. Yeah. Wow, so I guess that sounds like a really incredible project in terms of getting a well rounded view of the entire system, essentially. Yeah, we're really lucky to be able to look across the whole system. So especially, you know, on the voyages that go down, um, we look at the, the physics. So we look at where the currents are and the mixing in the water column. We're measuring the light levels when we go down and the nutrient concentrations of the water. Um, and then we look at the, the phytoplankton and we take zooplankton sensors down there to look at those. We use acoustics to look at the little fish. Um, we take midwater nets to look at the uh, invertebrates in the water column, bigger invertebrates. And then in the past, we've also done some uh, fishing on the seabed to kind of look at the distribution of those bigger demersal fish that toothfish are eating. Um, and we've used cameras to look at the benthic organisms, the, the corals down there and the, and the benthic sessile, the, the kind of structure forming benthic invertebrates. And so we're trying to look, you know, through the whole system, trying to understand how the whole thing fits together. And then we, you know, it's really uh, one of my great joys is trying to put all that together into food web models to try and look to see whether the system, how we can fit the whole system together and how we can look at characteristic behaviors of that system when, you, when one thing in the system changes. So it's a, a great project to be able to look across that whole, that whole system for sure. Yeah, definitely. It sounds like you've got all the tools in place for a good, well-rounded picture, which is pretty incredible. And now we just need to use the next few years to keep piecing things together and keep doing the science, essentially. That's right. One of the challenges is how, you know, how we monitor a system like this for 35 mm. years, because our project is just the first five years. So how does, how does the whole international community and, and New Zealand set up a system where we can monitor what we want to monitor for 35 years yeah. and do so in a cost-effective way. I mean, one thing that COVID has done is it's, is it's, is it's strained the financial system. So mm -hmm. we've got to find a way that's affordable of, of looking at the, the whole ecological system and, and gives us the information that we need without Definitely. breaking the bank. And at the back end of all of this, I guess there would be quite a significant amount of reporting that would go into uh, kickstarting another five years or documenting your knowledge so far to Kamla of how the system is operating. Yeah, yeah, certainly, you know, we're New Zealand's committed to playing its part in that five year review. Um, and then every five years, you know, after 10 years, 15, 20, 25, 30 and 35, you know, we kind of committed as a country to kind of playing a part in that. So we have to make sure that we're gathering the data that we need to say something useful at those times. 
And, and in terms of sort of future research, you know, really what we said we'd do on this one is we'd, we'd have a look at the threats from the fishery and from climate change and, and look at the different techniques that we can use to monitor these different parts and then recommend what a good strategy would be for the future. And it, and it seems to me that um, new technology is, is going to be a major part of that. So if we were going to get future funding, it would be around um, bringing that new technology on stream as fast as possible and, and making it answer the questions that we, we needed to answer in a way that's scalable um, and affordable. Definitely. Wow. Thank you so much for your time. That was really fascinating and pretty amazing that in an hour we've been able to cover microscopic phytoplankton to big baleen whales. But I guess it is just, it's such a complex system, even though the food chain isn't that long. There's a lot that goes into it and there's winners and losers and climate change is going to have different effects regionally and locally. And we just need to figure out as best possible how we can predict those changes, I guess. Yeah. And that's all happening, you know, and fishing is happening on top of all that as well. Exactly. So you're to, right. We've got, to, we've got to understand all those effects of fishing as well. You've got to make people really care for the system enough to listen to the science and try and understand it too, without it being overwhelming <laughs> yeah yeah for sure that, that's another i guess conversation in itself isn't it oh well once again thank you so much for your time matt i think um i definitely got a, a lot out of that conversation and i'm sure our listeners will as well there's a lot a lot of interesting stuff we covered there thanks for the opportunity to talk it's been really good fun hope you enjoyed the podcast Thanks for taking the time to learn and listen. More information about the episode and guest can be found in the show notes for those interested. And please leave a review if you've enjoyed tuning in. Subscribe to Antarctica Unfrozen wherever you listen to keep up to date on new guests, topics and ideas of the icy environmental kind. This season was made possible thanks to Pride Conservation, a boutique social enterprise from Aotearoa, New Zealand, on a mission to contribute to the conservation movement both here at home and globally. For more information and to help be part of the movement, check out www.prideconservation.co.nz. That's it for now. I'm Shanae Monty. And I'm Harry Seeger. And, and until, until next, next time, time stay cool. Stay cool.